Welcome to the Charleston School of Law podcast. I'm your host, John Struble. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or listen to streaming interviews on our website at charlestonlaw.edu. On to episode number nine. Today's guest is Charleston School of Law professor Ray Batla. Professor Batla, I'm looking at your resume, and it says here that you earned your undergraduate degree in civil engineering at UT Austin. How does a guy get from engineering to pursuing a law degree? I uh, grew up on a farm in rural Texas. Uh, we were part of a Czech immigrant community, and most of most of our neighbors and friends spoke Czech. I was the first in my family to go to, to uh, go to high school, let alone college. One of the fascinating notes from your childhood, Professor Batla, is the fact that your first language was not English. Prior to uh, acquiring a television in the 1950s, there was no English language in the house. It wasn't needed. Grew up speaking Czech. I, I did not speak a word of English when I started school in the first grade. There was very little formal education in your family. Your dad had a sixth grade education, your mom a second grade education, no high school, and certainly no college. I grew up in an agrarian culture that did not focus upon educational opportunity, uh, and I had to uh, acquire uh, and embrace uh, an appreciation for how education might be a path to a wider world. world. I was slow to uh, slow to learn about the outside world. Eventually, I uh, did well in math and science, mm. and so I, I looked upon something mathematical as maybe being a pathway. And so I ended up uh, majoring in engineering. But by the time uh, I uh, uh, finished engineering, uh, I was uh, ready for something broader. Engineering was uh, lacking in nuance, black and white. Uh, obviously, if you if you own an engineering consulting group, you're running a business. That then you have a broader view. Mm. But if you are a working engineer as such, you're basically dealing with formulas and numbers, and not not a verbal person. And so uh, I wanted something more than that. By that, and I was ready for that. So I turned down the free ride to a doctorate that NASA was offering. Wait, me. wait, wait. So your parents had grade school educations, and you turned down a free ride to earn your PhD and work for NASA. How did mom and dad feel about that, Ray? They were appalled. <laughs> they were appalled. They couldn't understand it. Uh, and they thought I was taking a huge risk. Engineers were, ma- were making very concrete, specific salaries, uh, especially for people with doctorates. Contrast that with the legal profession, which is uh, highly uncertain. But I, uh, I pulled it off, and I did well in law school, fortunately, and uh, made good grades, got on the law review, and uh, was fortunate to be highly recruited by some of the major law firms. But you don't stay in Texas, right? You dream big. You started looking outward. New York, Washington law firms. Yes. I mean, uh, I took the Texas bar. I talked to a number of the New York and Washington firms. The Wall Street firms were a bit intimidating for me at that point in my limited a world viewpoint. Uh, and so I settled upon a, uh, a mid-sized firm in Washington that had a, a business practice. One of your early cases in Washington was Watergate. In fact, it's the 50th anniversary of the break-in at the DNC Watergate headquarters. What was that experience like for a young attorney? It was fascinating as a beginning lawyer, uh, let alone a young lawyer, to be working on matters that were capturing the national attention. We were representing Howard Hunt, who was the ex-CIA agent who had uh, run the slush fund and orchestrated the uh, the break-in of the headquarters. It was uh, it was 
quite a heady, uh, exhilarating experience. So after the dust settled on Watergate, Professor Batla, you shifted gears and settled back into your work as a business attorney in Washington. And then the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, and the world economic landscape was about to go through a major change. And you witnessed this and saw an opportunity. Uh, You used your network to take part in a U.S. delegation that headed to Europe to look at the business climate there and see what the opportunity was. Can you tell us how that happened, how that came about, and how it changed the entire trajectory of your career? I knew that one of my partners, uh, Frank Farenkopf, was... uh uh, chair, was on the board of the National Endowment. He was a f- former uh, uh, chair of the, uh, the Republican National Committee under Reagan. So I went to see him. I said, Frank, I've never asked you for anything, but it, I, it would mean a lot to me personally uh, to be on this delegation. And uh, he got me on there. It was co-chaired by Senator John McCain from Arizona and uh, Madeleine Albright, who later became Clinton's secretary. So we met everyone that was in the leadership of, of the new country. But more importantly, as we traveled around the country for a week, I could observe the interest from the business community, the international business community, in investing there because the country was starved for investment. The phone system uh, was dilapidated. There were no cell phones, of course, but the landline system was was uh, was a disaster. The energy uh, uh, installations were a disaster. Mm. Environmental issues were, and uh, I could see. Atlantic traveling around the country, General General Electric was opening an office there, and, you know, no lawyers, because in the communist system, the state owns everything, there are no property rights, no eventual rights. So I went back to Washington after the trip, went to the Czech embassy, they had a database on 3,000 Czech companies, I researched the 80 that uh, were making money and presumably could afford lawyers. So, and I prepared a five-page presentation in Czech uh, <laughs> describing myself, uh, my qualifications, and uh, uh, and the firm in general. Faxed it off to them. 50-plus ended up inviting me to come uh, visit them and make a pitch for their business. And uh, d- did that and uh, came back with 13 signed engagement letters <laughs> paying me cash retainers on a monthly basis to to be available to represent them when they did deals with foreigners. Hello. <laughs> and uh, so I went to the managing partner of the firm and said, well, we've got all this business in Prague. We need an office there. And he said, well, Ray, you've stirred up this mess. Uh, you go fix it. <laughs> uh, he suggested that I hand off my Washington practice uh, to one of my partners, pack up the family, rent the house out, and uh, move to Prague, get that office started, make it successful, which is what we did. In 1990, uh, 1991, we moved to Prague. We were there a couple of years, and we got that office up and running and successful. I hired uh, Czech law students who then graduated and became Czech lawyers and uh, built out the practice. But I could see the same thing happening throughout Europe. I saw the similar opportunities. And mm-hmm. Even though I didn't speak Polish, or Russian or Hungarian, mm. uh, I was already doing business with Polish companies and Hungarian companies and Russian companies. And many of our American clients were investing in those countries. So I persuaded the managing partner to let us move to London and uh, to, to use London as the base while I uh, represented our primarily American clients throughout all of those uh, regions. Kept the Czech business going, of course, traveled to Prague regularly and continued to be involved in that. But it gave me new opportunities in some of these other areas and significantly introduced me to a wider array of our American and Western European clients. 
and uh, led to an international corporate and mergers and acquisitions and finance practice that eventually encompassed, uh, by the time I stepped down from what later became a managing partner role for our international offices, uh, we had about 14 offices oh. internationally. And I was also working in the Middle East and in Latin America by that point. And so I, I had the opportunity through all of that period to uh, represent the, the big Brazilian oil, uh, oil company, Petrobras, in the $2.3 billion financing of the Bolivia-Brazil gas pipeline project. Almost simultaneously, I was representing uh, a joint venture uh, uh, between Bell Atlantic, uh, now Verizon, mm -hmm. and the U.S. West, another big U.S. telecoms company, with the Czech telecom company, uh, building out the uh, the uh, the first cell phone company in the Czech Republic. I negotiated the first uh, telecommunications license in the country. Wow. And eventually then led this consortium of U.S. telecom companies in selling what they had in uh, the Central European countries, including Poland and Russia and Hungary, uh, to Deutsche Telekom, the big German telecom co company. That was, at the time, the largest M&A deal ever done in, in Eastern Europe, a uh, $2 billion uh, transaction. We had seven offices with 40 lawyers. Uh, and when I stepped down uh, as managing partner of international we had 14 offices, 300 lawyers. So we built the practice, uh, multiplied it. The, the most fun, of course, was working in uh, these diverse countries in different, different cultures, different legal systems, different languages. Uh, the Claude No Energy Project that I did in Prague uh, in, uh, was the largest project financing that was done uh, up to that point without uh, governmental guarantees. It involved uh, 26... Uh, banks lending into the project, mm. including an arm of the uh, World Bank. The loan being made in multiple currencies, multiple languages. I've got 11, an 11, 11 volumes of uh, bound volumes on, on the walls in my office uh, just from that deal alone, 70 contracts, wow. uh, three different languages. This was an expansion beyond you know anything that I, I could have imagined. But uh, of course, it built up over time, over years. Uh, it involved embracing new opportunities and constantly reinventing oneself, which I found the most exciting part of the job. Your wife and two children moved to Prague with you in 1991. So your whole family grew up in another country and another culture. What was that like? Uh, now, my wife was very much in, involved in that. She uh, in, in that that aspect of it, because uh, she had just gotten her uh, bachelor's from George Mason in management. And so she went to work as a business manager in a Czech company, mm. reorganizing the company. And that led eventually to them engaging her as a consultant as they, uh, for their international work. When we moved to London in 93, she was actually able to use the retainers that she got from those Czech clients to, to fund her MBA uh, while we were in London. And so she was juggling a lot of different balls, as I was in those days, uh, you know, raising two young children while simultaneously getting an MBA. Professor Batla, what year did you move back to the U.S.? We moved the family back in, in 98. Uh, my wife's mother had gotten uh, seriously ill, okay. and she felt drawn to come back to, to assist with that. Moved the family back there in July of, of 98, and, and eventually moved mother-in-law in, built her an apartment. And she spent the last year and a half of her life with us. So the kids went to middle school and high school uh, in the U.S. 
uh, kindergarten, elementary school, first at schools, international schools in Prague, and then then at the American School in, in London, a wonderful um, American school there that they benefited greatly from. You know, they, they have um, got the international bug. You spent 40 years practicing law around the world, Professor Batla. How has that experience shaped your worldview? Do you ever reflect on that? Well, yes. And, I, and of course, one of the courses I teach is international business transaction. In that course, more than any other, I uh, have the opportunity to, uh, to present that worldview to my students as we talk about uh, doing investments into China, Brazil, and, and how an American company might evolve uh, from initially just selling some of its products internationally to international customers on to eventually doing joint ventures in foreign countries. I can almost always find an experience in my personal history that would illustrate a point I'm trying to make in the course. And that, of course, brings things to life for my students. That worldview uh, is very much at the forefront of my teaching. It also plays a very major role in terms of my ability to break down concepts, com complicated concepts into simple components that I can convey to students. Many of my students haven't had any business courses. The, uh, the technical concepts, the business <laughs> concepts are something quite foreign. What, what we have to do is break things down into understandable components that someone without a business background can grasp mm. to get to the end point of being able to embrace and work with the complicated concepts. I've always been drawn to the educator who can take book knowledge and practical experience and merge them. In this case, it sounds to me like the student needs to have a built-in entrepreneurial spirit to be a successful jurist on the international stage. Is that fair? Is that an accurate statement? That's absolutely accurate. Now, of course, I didn't get there overnight. I had to, I had to grow that uh, understanding over time. And one of the things I emphasize is anyone interested in international law has to be open to uh, embracing those new avenues. Those who teach year after year, the material can become rote. I would assume. Students will change, but the material needs to remain relevant and new and fresh. How do you keep your course curriculum fresh? Well, first of all, I'm constantly updating the material. Mm -hmm. I'm reading the new cases in the area and updating my notes and my, and my lectures. Uh, but uh, more important than that, as you point out, the students are changing. And so it's always a new challenge to, to, to wake up that appreciation for business concepts in people who come to the class with the expectation that they're going to be bored and not be interested in the course. Uh, there are a lot of people who think, well, business is going to be boring. I'm, I'm, I need to take this because it's required, but I'm not going to enjoy it. Find that they enjoy it. That comment a lot in my uh, student evaluations. Professor Batla, it sounds to me like you're in a position to, I don't know, sit on the beach read a couple books, enjoy your family. What stokes your passion to keep teaching? Watching the light bulb go on when I'm talking about concepts and introducing concepts, breaking down concepts, is very rewarding for me. And then I have many students who have graduated that keep in touch with me and call me about their problems. I have one student that is a, uh, he's about four years out now, is a general counsel of an agricultural co-op. They do many, many acquisitions here. They're a growing company. They're acquiring similar businesses, expanding. 
and uh, he's running into new issues all the time. He'll call me up and say, Professor Batla, I've, got, I've never seen this before. Uh, can you shed any light on it? And so I'm, I'm sort of experiencing those new elements that they're encountering through them, which I also find very rewarding. So what are your passions outside of the law? As, as you may know, I had a stroke that paralyzed my right side several years ago. In fact, it was, it was in 2015, my first semester as an adjunct. And uh, I had a long rehab to, uh, to regain uh, my, uh, my functions. My arm came back very well. I can write, type, and do everything that I did before. My leg is still impaired, so I, I walk with a cane. But I do drive and I do walk with a cane, and I'm able to get around and function quite normally, considering. But that did take away some of my outside of work passions. Okay. I was an avid golfer. We, I was playing golf three times a week. We were taking navigation lessons for boating. That's gone. So most of what I do involves an interest in international affairs. I do a lot of reading. I still keep in touch with a lot of people internationally. Keeping on top of world and political affairs is, is a great interest. And then, of course, I spend a lot of time outside of the classroom meeting with students, not only just counseling them with respect to preparation for the exams. Many of them come to see me because of my experiences, wanting uh, some guidance on their own planning and what are opportunities like in this area, what are opportunities like in that area. So I enjoy all of that. Professor Ray Batla, Charleston School of Law. Thank you so much for your wisdom and sharing your story with us today, Professor Batla. If you have questions about the show or for Professor Batla, visit charlestonlaw.edu and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify at Charleston Law. Thank you for listening to the Charleston School of Law podcast. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure.